I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Donald Rysick, author of Toxic Affairs on Hidden Lane, a novel. When Ulf Bauer falls or fi- falls victim to a mysterious, life-threatening illness, his son, Dr. Jace Bauer, soon begins to suspect foul play. Many family members, as well as Ulf Bauer's longtime mistress, might have motives to terminate him. With the help of colleagues and a private investigator, Jace confirms that somebody is slowly poisoning his father. His investigation uncovers family scandals, previous murderous plots, and many suspects who might want to inherit the family fortune. The story is set against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Donald Rysick, Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve, has served as Medical Director of the Kidney Transplant Service at University Hospital Cleveland Medical Center and Chief of Nephrology and Hypertension at UHCMC. He's written many novels or many mysteries with medical themes. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Catherine. It's nice to be here. All right. Well, I'm going to kind of take off on that last thing that I said, writing uh, numerous mysteries with medical themes. What's the connection Mm -hmm. between your specialty as a physician, or is there any, uh, and writing these medical themes? I mean, those are two different professions as an author, a writer, and a physician. Well, I I am a physician. I'm I'm now, uh, as of last week, fully retired, by the way, but... um, Congratulations. I worked for over almost, thanks, almost 40 years as a physician. And I was an academic physician, which meant I had to do a lot of, of writing, you know, publish or perish. It holds up in academic medicine, just like in universities. Uh, so I had um, done a lot of medical writing in my career and ended up publishing over 200 papers and several textbooks and book chapters. So writing is something that most academic physicians have to excel in. And I enjoyed it immensely. Had some great writing mentors as a trainee years ago. Um, and I, I just wanted to get into creative uh, writing. And um, the circumstances for that I can talk about in a minute. But um, having having um, said that, obviously, uh, you, you um, rely on your expertise when it comes to writing creatively, whether it's it's fiction or any other kind of writing. So my background is in medicine. It seemed logical to have medical themes for all of my books. Um, my previous medical novels or mysteries, I'd hate to say, were almost more autobiographical in that uh, most readers identified me as one of the main characters in the book. With this book, um, I had other motivations for writing it, but um, also wanted to get away from the idea that I was a character in the book, so it's completely distant from my own, my own uh, personal situation. But, you know, you say it's distant, and before, actually, I read this book, I read the book that you had written uh, about your wife, uh, Lynn's Last Christmas. So I read that first. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and then thank I read this one. That. And then I was actually thinking kind of the opposite of what you just said. I thought, are these characters in this book similar to his own family, and what are the similarities, if any? Uh, because... It, that did go through my mind, and you're saying, no, that's not true. In this book, you decided, you know, it's going to be very different than the others. No similarities between the fiction and the, the real life. <laughs> so thank you for reading the book about my wife, who uh, listeners don't know. She passed away in uh, 2018 and had severe dementia. 
thus the title of the book, A Battle with Dementia. Uh, a little different from my other writings, because that was absolutely a true story and a very short read if readers are interested and have an interest in dementia, which is such a common thing. But um, to, to build up to toxic affairs, and thank you for reading both these books, but um, my first uh, attempt in creative writing was back in, uh, I think, 2010. Going back further in 1994, one of my sons developed acute leukemia and was extremely ill, and uh, although he's, he's alive today at the age of 38, there were many points uh, during his illness that he was close to death. And I told my wife at that time, I said, if we ever survive this ordeal, and if Kevin, my son, survives the ordeal, I'm going to write a book about it. And, uh, you know, I waited a few years uh, until I had a little more free time from what, what I did on the job and, and wrote, wrote the, the first uh, novel. Now, um, it was based on a real story, but there was a surrounding fiction. I actually grew up in a neighborhood west of Cleveland where at the same time my son had leukemia, there were four or five other people within a block who developed cancers of various kinds. And um, there was a lot of talk then about maybe there's some toxic, maybe we're living on a toxic waste dump that's causing all these cancers. I mean, the idea sort of died and wasn't uh, pursued. But uh, years later, after writing my in-between novels, uh, in 2020, uh, I read some reports about a sudden surge in the incidence of suicides and poisonings. And it was all thought to be related to, guess what, COVID, um, which was happening at that exact time, whether COVID was causing more people to be anxious and depressed and suicidal or homicidal, wanting to poison people, never became clear. But it was at that time I said, I'm going to bring this issue of toxic wastes and poisons into a, a novel. But to get to your point, uh, uh, you know, the family that you read about in uh, Toxic Affairs is not my family. There is an allusion to a kid across the street with leukemia. I guess maybe that's, again, borrowing from reality. But I wanted to distance myself and my own family from this story. Um, because and one of the I, things I, that you I, say I, in the book, I think one of the characters, uh, I'm not sure which character it was, was talking about that we all have secrets. All, all families have secrets. So mm-hmm. I, I wondered if any of these family secrets were related to your family secrets. Uh, no, but, but, you know, the two themes of the book, Catherine, I, I'm not sure if you'd agree, but one is this issue of, of, of poisoning, which makes for a nice uh, medical slash murder mystery. But the other theme is marital infidelity. And, um, of course, I, everybody has, has friends or family members that have experienced mar- marital infidelity. So that's kind of a common problem where poisoning is. And so it would be fair to say, that that aspect of the story, the marital infidelity that led to the kind of the, the decline of uh, this uh, otherwise affluent uh, family, um, uh, is something that we've we've all experienced uh, in friends and neighbors or family members. So yeah, so part of that was borrowed from reality, but not my actual family. Yeah. Let's, you know, I had interviewed a transplant physician a few weeks ago on the show, and I was curious because being in that business, um, that obviously you were, what, head of the transplant team, et cetera, you learn a lot about families, don't you? I mean, it gives you a lot of insight, really, pers- you have to know the personal, intimate details of families in order to, to see, to, I guess, what see whether well, they're appropriate I, I that- for transplant. Uh, yeah. 
sure. Well, I think getting to know families is a responsibility of all physicians, so it's perhaps not unique to, to transplant. But transplantation was a wonderful field to be in for some uh, 35 years. Um, it, it's, it's mostly happy endings. You know, people who are either on dialysis or dying of organ failures of various kinds who suddenly have a new lease on, on life. Um, but there are also challenges um, related to, you know, grafts being rejected in the long run, related to complications of the medications. And I think to your point, perhaps more than other fields, when we're assessing potential transplant candidates, we need people with strong family backgrounds and strong social support um, in order to make sure that the patient complies with a very uh, with a regimen that's very difficult to comply with because it's basically a lifelong regimen of, of, of toxic medicines. So, yeah, some truth to, to um, transplantation lending it well to this kind of understanding of family dynamics. How difficult was it for you to write the book? I'm just going back to the, the, uh, the as you say, the, the, the short book that you wrote about your wife and, and dementia because it's kind of all related to what we're talking about now. How difficult was that well, for you to write that book? I wrote that book, and uh, you remember it better than I. Probably it's only 70 or 80 pages long, so it's hardly a Bible. But uh, I basically wrote the entire book within two days of my wife's burial. I remember going to the uh, post-burial get-together for family and friends, and I told my son I was just mentally fatigued and had him drive me home, and so I had about six hours of free time pondering the events of the previous months and the, the, her death itself. And I had all the ideas in my head. They were actually reality. I just jotted them down very quickly. And uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the book was written very quickly. The Toxic Affairs unfolded a little uh, more slowly. It's a longer book, of course, but um, um, I'm a very uh, picky writer. And I learned that from, doing scientific writing with excellent mentors who are excellent writers. But um, when I, when I write, of course, there's the basic outline and the basic plot and the character development that you're worried about. But I spent a lot of time proofreading and reading over and over again. So the idea of the book was probably formulated from the beginning as it usually is, but actually putting pen to paper or to the word processor uh, took a longer time. So it probably took me over a year to finish this book. And who's your best uh, critic, uh, aside from, you know, the professionals who have to obviously edit and, and critique your book? Any, any <laughs> I, I, actually, uh, probably my uh, my kids, but, um, you know, to, to be more serious about that, I, uh, I, um, ha- I did um, um, use a, uh, an editor, a developmental editor, a gal from Iowa, who worked for a famous author that you may have heard named Abraham Bergesi. He's at Stanford now. Abraham wrote what, to me, is probably the best medical book or medical mystery of all time called Cutting for Stone. Uh, Abraham is a friend of a friend, and that person happens to be a gentleman named Jerry Kassir, who wrote the endorsement at the front of the book, Jerry was the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, the most prestigious journal, uh, medical journal in the world, for about 10 years, and is a good friend. And I, in chatting with him while I was writing this book, he said, well, I'll read your draft, and, um, 
and he happens to be a personal friend of Abraham uh, out in Stanford. Uh, so he hooked me up with Abraham, and I communicated with him a couple times, and he gave me the, the, the names of a few people who, not so much critics, but sort of um, developmental editors. I mean, they could look at a book, not not to look at punctuation and grammar, but just ideas, whether they flow well, whether the character development is adequate. Um, so those are the people early on who uh, were my uh, critics. To answer your question, I wish I had more critics uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, criticisms of the book always lead to more publicity for the book. Um, uh, so um, if you have anybody else who wants to critique the book, let me know. <laughs> well, well, my, I guess my next question is, you know, how much did you have to change? And, and, and you know, when they're critiquing your book and the whole process and you've written it, you know, you put all this energy and emotion into it and then they take a look at it and say, no, this isn't going to work or whatever they do. And do you fight it or do you usually sit back? You know, what's, your, you, what's yeah, usually you, your response? Yeah. You tend you tend to be defensive because you like, you like to think that your work is, is excellent, but um, – Hiring this uh, development editor, and her name is Irene Connolly. There's no reason why I have to hide her name. She works out of Iowa and is very good. But um, certainly she was highly critical of the first draft that she read, particularly with reference to the protagonist of the book. You mentioned his name, Jace Bauer. She thought she thought he was a, a little unidimensional and controlling and um, that everything went his way and suggested that we write, that I write more conflict into his life. And so if you've read the book, you know that he has his own kind of mini marital issues with his new wife uh, in the in the middle of COVID and in the middle of this crisis in his family. So yeah, I changed a lot based on her critiques alone. Jerry Kassir himself, um, he's not a creative writer, but obviously he's a major scientific writer and, and an avid reader in general. He had some excellent comments about strengthening some of the characters. So uh, best to do that before rather than after the book is published and have people negatively criticize it and said, you should have done this, you should have done that. So I'm all for that early kind of criticism and perfectly willing to adapt if it improves the story. How disciplined do you have to be? Because I think obviously you're very disciplined. And right before we got on the show, you told me you went to Georgetown and you went to Tufts and very impressed. I didn't read that in the beginning, but as a New Englander, um, you you know, you have these, besides all the work you've done, impressive credentials. So I'm assuming you are a disciplined person and that carries over into writing your books, whether they're... well, I mentioned uh, my full retirement limit last week. I actually partially retired uh, <laughs> when my <laughs> wife died, actually. Uh, so uh, what is that, almost four years ago. In fact, I retired a little bit earlier than I had planned because I thought I was going to have to spend more time uh, as her caretaker. And uh, she passed away like one week before my official partial retirement date. This is the first, other than the memoir, which I, I wrote very quickly, uh, this is the first book that I've written with enough free time because I was partially retired to uh, make it easier than when I was working full time. You know, I mentioned that I had written a lot of scientific papers and books and whatnot. My wife was alive. She could tell you that basically all that writing I did in the middle of nights at home, uh, because there just wasn't time as an active physician to cut out an hour or two for any kind of writing scientific or creative. So I wrote, a lot of papers, but it would be like between the hours of one and four in the morning 
lots of coffee. <laughs> um, and, and then I would go back to work the next day. Uh, that was probably not the best way to do any kind of writing. It's nice now to have the luxury of a little free time. And yes, uh, as I was in the middle of writing this manuscript, I made sure that I devoted at least three or four hours a day to the book, whether it was writing something new or just rereading an old passage and editing it and changing it. Um, uh, yeah, good authors have to be very disciplined, I think. You have, do you have four children? I forgot. Three or four children. Four all children. adults. Yeah, now they're adults, yes. Um, you know, here you are. I'm always curious. I mean, your dad, as dad as superstar, physician, author, you know, how does that impact the rest of the family? I know each kid is different, each family is different, but uh, you mentioned, you know, here you are, you're working all day as a physician, and then four hours at night, you're also writing a book, and you're doing all these kinds of things, and then in the end, you're also help taking care of your wife. So how does that fit into the family dynamics? You know, I'm a social worker, I'm curious. Well, Catherine, as you know, if your social work involves anything in the field of medicine, medicine has changed tremendously since I went to medical school. And I think the reasons I went to medical school and the goals I had then are far different than the reasons and goals that young kids now have going through it. Medicine has become a big business. Business, that yeah. It wasn't, yeah. That it wasn't. And, and if I write in the next book and I've been thinking about it, it's going to dwell on that kind of change that's affected not just medicine, but really the lives of all American people. You know, the doctor-patient relationship that was so sacred when I was in training um, is, uh, is, is non-existent. You know, doctors don't see their patients in hospitals anymore. Hospitalists do that, right? My own mother, when she got sick and ended up dying, wondered where her doctor was because he didn't come to the hospital. But that, that's just one of many elements of modern medicine that, um, that has made me unhappy. And one of my previous novels, calling of all things Escape from Cleveland, kind of portrays me as the as the unhappy academic physician with all these new changes. But to get to your point and, and uh, addressing my own family, it's telling that of my four children, none of them decided to go to medical school. <laughs> it's, it's also true that three of them are involved in medical research now and are doing quite well. So I guess some of them are adopted, but um, I think they probably saw a father who, although albeit successful, and, and they benefited from, you know, that kind of financial success otherwise was just incredibly overworked and, you know, probably anxiety prone much of much of his career, particularly in the latter part of it. And um, you can't tell me that that hasn't had its effect. I had this discussion with colleagues all the time because it's actually in my generation, uh, not extraordinary, but not as common as it was in the past for all of your kids to, to follow in your footsteps. And in this generation, it's probably true that fewer and fewer kids are following in the footsteps of their physician parents and, and, and uh, pursuing that path. So I, I'm concerned a little bit about the quality of people that will uh, be taking my place uh, as you know, the future generation of doctors. But we, we'll see how things pan out. Well, the context is different. Could it be, I mean, doesn't it have, is it has evolved? It has to evolve. I mean, just in the context of how we do business, period, that it's got to be a different kind of a physician. I, I'm thinking about specialties. You know, everybody has a specialty. And if you go to the doctor, uh, you know, who has an orthopedist and you have, you can't ask him anything except related to orthope orthopedics, right? And that's it. And then you have to right. go to somebody else. Uh, so 
you know, in, in my generation also, which is probably your generation, people, you go to the doctor, it was more of a generalized practice unless you had something really wrong with you. And they knew you, they knew the family, but that's not possible now because there's so much more information, well, isn't there? I mean, well, and I have, yeah. I have mixed, mixed feelings about it. You know, my, my original intent when I went to school and started training was to be a general doctor. And, um, I, I quickly learned, um, in middle of residency training that no, no physician can grasp all of medicine. There's just too much knowledge out there in various subspecialties. And, you know, so I did my own specialty training in nephrology, as you, you mentioned, and just happy that I did that. Um, I think, I think Americans want uh, specialization. There was a period there, I was probably already a junior faculty in the 80s, where the whole concept was cut down costs by maintaining, you know, primary care physicians who were the gatekeepers, right? They would prevent uh, people from seeing some specialists by taking care of patients themselves. But, you know, in America, if you have leukemia, right, to use an example of my son, you're not going to ask your primary care physician to take care of it. You're going to want to be referred to a specialist or a subspecialist. And that's, an, that's an exaggerated example. But, you know, if I develop diabetes or if my family member develops diabetes, I probably do want them to see a diabetic specialist and not just be followed by the primary care physician. So I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, don't get me wrong. I, I really admire primary care physicians, whether they're internists or family practitioners. Um, but I do think there's a role for subspecialty. But as you imply, maybe that's part of what's gone wrong with medicine. Everything's become so specialized that we lose what you're talking about, was, which is knowing the patient, knowing their family background and their social situation, because uh, medical care has been fragmented amongst all the subspecialists. So it's very complicated. Um, but I'm yeah. not going to back down from saying I was happy that I did a subspecialty fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't back down. I, I was going to give you a personal example. I went to a, a, an ophthalmologist just to get routine checkup yearly, and it was interesting because first they I, I had no particular problem. So the, I think the uh, fellow she was there and she did most of the talking and the examining. The the you know the the head physician or the one who owns the practice was in the next room talking to somebody else. And of course, and I'm listening to what he has to say to her because she was there for the same reason. And he came and he had a medical student there. He came into my cubicle, our little office space, and he had the medical student and he, he introduced himself and then gave the same speech that he gave to her. (laughs) I had a laugh. And then he looks down at his paper and he gets my name. And, uh, but it was just like a repeat performance. Uh, Not that I want anything, you know, negative to for him to say, but I, I just found that funny because that's kind of what we're talking about. I, it didn't bother me. I mean, I'd, I, but um, I mean, there was no connection except to my eye, but <laughs> not to me. Yeah, I, I, I'm a patient as well as a doctor. So yeah. I, in that situation, I, I, I see a dermatologist quite regularly. To be honest, the, the actual physician, a woman uh, who I first saw I haven't seen since in two years. That's always her nurse practitioner and their techs that come in and talk to you. So, yeah, uh, the doctor-patient relationship has suffered over the years, I believe. Yeah. And, and just to continue for a minute on this topic, I, some of that doesn't bother me. Then it, I don't have the pressure of having to necessarily have a relationship, you know, just look at the problem and diagnose it and I'm out of here and that's okay with me. And it's uh, more, you know, 
expedient. But that's 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 where our medicine has drifted to more of the science than the art that I think it once was in the past. And um, you know, uh, the physician as an artist can't survive in this world. They've got to make money to get by, and that's where we get back to how big how, how it's become a big business and different from what I knew from 35 years ago. Yeah. And doesn't it impact, do you think, diagnoses? I noticed with some of these young physicians, for instance, yeah, they have all the tests, they have all the results, you can get them on your portal. I have them too. And yet by not talking to the patient and not really looking at you, they're missing a lot in terms of maybe diagnosing something that isn't so obvious. Always listen to the customer, right? In yeah. this case, the patient, they're 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 telling you what the problem is. Yeah, it's better than a CT scan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, in terms of getting to the bottom of something, I think we're on the same page here. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think? And I just mentioned these the, the portal, for instance. You get all your diagnose, you get all your tests back, uh, but you well, don't know see, what don't they mean. Then you go on and you Google. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. The electronic medical record, uh, you know, which was mandated many years ago. It's been a wonderful thing, but it's been a very negative thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, the phenomenon of cutting and pasting is is uh, is um, discouraged by institutions, but physicians do it all the time. I can't tell you how many times, Catherine, I've read compl- the, the records of complicated patients with multiple problems, and you'll see a problem list that's never changed, including some a problem that was really never something that the patient had and it can't be gotten rid of for the record. And it gets copied over and over and over again. Um, it's, it's just fuel for lawsuits amongst other things. Um, so I, I, I think that the electronic medical record is a good thing, but it's actually made it too easy for young residents to lose sight of who the patient actually is. We have one minute left. This has been a great conversation. Oh. I'd love to continue. Yeah, I, but I want to make sure everybody knows the, the name of your book, Toxic Affairs on Hidden Lane, a novel. You can buy it online. Actually, I downloaded it. Um, and uh, you've written many more books as well, as I said in the beginning. So um, website we can go to and or websites for more information. Uh, my, website, my website is easy, except my, hard, my last name is hard to spell, as you know. But it's, it is Donald Reisick, that's D-O-N-A-L-D-H-R-I-C-I-K.com. And my website includes pictures of all my uh, novels, including the two or three that we mentioned, um, and some short synopses. I also am kind of an amateur artist and post some of my artwork on that website. So your listeners are welcome to visit the website, DonaldRysick.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. It was my pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> <laughs> 